Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Cockroaches stormed the Marine Corps and drove Marines right out of their barracks. The infestation occurred last week at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. It's cold showers for service members at the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in California for the last couple of months, and mold plagues housing at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. Well, now Congress is demanding action to fix crumbling military housing. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. And let's begin with what they're doing already in DOD with cockroaches, cold showers, and mold. Housing and military bases has been plagued by maintenance issues for a long time. Over the last couple of years, there have been provisions included in the National Defense Authorization Act to improve military barracks. For example, the creation of a tenant bill of rights provision that was included in the 2020 NDAA. That bill of rights helps tenants understand their rights before moving in. It provides transparency on historical issues with the unit and it also gives guidance on how to address those issues. DOD has been increasing oversight of their privatized housing, even though there are still a lot of gaps, like there's not enough data to go off of, performance metrics are insufficient, there is no well-defined standards for health and safety in the barracks. But this recent report from the Government Accountability Office has drawn a lot of outrage from Congress and an admission from the Pentagon that living conditions are just simply unacceptable. Here's Congressman Mike Waltz from the House Armed Services Committee. This GAO report just showing these photos from on the conditions of barracks across the military apartments, I hope has been a real wake-up call for our leadership. I mean, we have, by my count, 500 installations, 500,000 buildings, 9,000 unaccompanied housing facilities that we're trying to fund and manage. The GAO visited just 10. I don't even know what they would have seen if they could have gone to all of them. I don't think anybody on this committee or any of you are expecting our service members to live in the Taj Mahal. I don't think that's their expectation. But this is disgusting. This is unsatisfactory. And Waltz wasn't done. Would any of you want your children in these kind of conditions with mold, with feces, with broken sewage lines? I wouldn't. And this is just a small, small sample of what we're managing or telling their high school buddy or their cousin or whomever, this is a service you got to join. You're overseas, you're deployed, you come back home. You want a washing machine and a dryer that works. You want a decent facility to go back to. And I can't even imagine what this is doing to unit morale. Um, You can hear frustration and Congress really wants action. The DOD is taking a lot of steps this year to fix some of the issues. For example, Brendan Owens, he's the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Installations, Energy and Environment. He said that DOD established a TIGER team that will be addressing fiscal 2024 defense policy bill provisions and the issues that were highlighted by the Government Accountability Office's audits. The FY24 NDA provisions and the recommendations in the GAO's report have been instrumental in shaping the priorities of a TIGER team we stood up earlier this month. The TIGER team will focus on determining new configuration and habitability standards, improving accessibility, availability, and reliability of UH metrics, developing standardized preventive maintenance plans, and identifying opportunities to improve quality of life and resilience. 
All right, so she read that one pretty well then. The NDAA for 2024, what housing provisions are actually in there, Anastasia? The bill will require the Secretary of Defense to enforce standards for unaccompanied housing facilities regarding design, floor, space, and level of maintenance required, which was one of the recommendations by the GAO. The Secretary of Defense will also have to issue rules for managing work orders related to maintenance work. And again, all of this was highlighted by the GAO. The bill will also require the establishment of a civilian employee at the housing office at each military installation to oversee unaccompanied housing facilities and related issues. That one was big. And by the way, are they talking about government-owned housing as well as the leased properties where a contractor comes in and operates on base? They were talking about both, and they were talking a lot about the privatized housing. There are a lot of initiatives happening within the service branches to improve the privatized housing because, again, what was highlighted by the GAO report is that there is not enough oversight by the DOD. Right. And this is where service members in the contracted housing, they're paying rent to be there. Yes. Mm -hmm. But they're a captive audience because that's the housing that's there on base. Exactly. They can't move across the street because they have a kidney-shaped swimming pool on the other place, and this one has a (laughs) rectangle. Now, we heard some promises from the deputy secretary. What have they been doing so far? What did the services say they've been doing to improve housing? Again, this problem goes back years. Just yesterday, the Navy announced that they're doing a wall-to-wall inspection of all their barracks around the world. This should help them get an assessment of, of their inventory and get a better understanding of the conditions of all of their barracks. Those inspections should be done by March 15th, and uh, we will have a better idea what the Marine Corps barracks are like around the world. The Air Force is investing $1.1 billion in its dorms program this year. It's tripled the investment over the previous five years, ending fiscal 2021. It's their largest dorm investment in over a decade. So that was a big announcement. Also, the department's infrastructure council will provide oversight on everything from investments to implementation to implementation of uh, different policy initiatives like like the Airman Dorm Leadership Program. Here's Ravi Chaudhry, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations, Energy and Environment. We're pulling out all the stops to address GAO findings. We're also accelerating efforts in privatized housing. And I can sum up our efforts in three words, oversight, accountability, and where appropriate, enforcement. Yeah, and again, okay, great. But this has been a problem that's been lingering for several years now. Did anyone, like, lose a job, maybe, over this? Have any contractors been hauled in? I mean, consequences. Congressman Waltz asked Brendan Owens the Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for Installations, Energy, and Environment, if anyone has been dismissed or if anyone has been held accountable, uh, since accountability was such a prevalent theme during this hearing. And Owen said that no one, um, as of right now, uh, no one has been dismissed as a result of the latest GAO report. I wonder why in each installation there's not somebody reporting to the commander, the commandant, whoever it might be running that one for those 18 months or two years, designated to run around and look at housing as part of the regular job. They look at garages, I'm sure, and and logistics installations. Why not housing? Yeah, I think that's what they're really trying to improve this year. Uh, from everything that they that they said during the hearing, I, they did put a big emphasis on the fact that they want to have some oversight. Um, and also, 
Congressman Waltz also said something like the military should get out of the hotel management business. So what he was trying to get at was let's let's find designated people to take care of this and let the military to do their jobs. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.